Good evening. For those who don't know, it's uh, Rosh Hadosh, which is um, New Moon, which means it's a holiday. And we've been um, practicing hard for two days now. I know it seems like it's been more than 48 hours. <laughs> like what? Six days? 12 days? But it's been um, a little less than 48 hours. And so it's now a holiday. Relax. <laughs> So this evening I want to continue the exploration of Jewish mindfulness by talking about uh, what I'm calling the awakening prophet. It's a double entendre. It means that the prophet is awakening and the prophet is awakening others. And I'm using the sense of prophet that does come directly from the Jewish tradition, from the great prophets of the 8th to the 6th centuries. And what I'm going to suggest is that this is an important way to understand Jewish mindfulness. I think quite complementary in a way, or maybe I should say that it fills out some of what uh, Jeff gave last night. And particularly, I think that sense of the awakening prophet points to both the sense of inner work, awakening, and the outer action of the prophet. And again, many of you are familiar with the prophetic tradition. The prophet is not so much the one who foresees the future but the one who calls out injustice and helps action occur to transform the injustice. So the sense of awakening prophet is really pointing to a way that um, mindfulness gets connected with the prophetic impulse. And that's a very crucial, I believe, way to understand, again, one interpretation of Jewish mindfulness for our times. I believe that the urgent needs of our times really call forth something like that, whether it's in a Jewish version or a Buddhist version, Christian version, agnostic version, totally secular version. I think we're called forth to connect that sense of inner and outer transformation because of some of the intensity of our challenges. Every generation thinks its own challenges are the most intense, of course. It's been going on for thousands of years, but ours seem to be. <laughs> think of you know, economic collapse, global warming. You know, um, until recently, publicly sanctioned torture widening gap between the rich and the poor, and so forth. There are urgent times. So I wanted to say a little bit about my own uh, personal 
relationship to the prophetic tradition, then say a little bit about the prophets. But especially what I want to do is to connect what we're doing here, the development of mindfulness, the development of the blessing practices that we explored earlier today. What's the connection of that with what we do when we go out into the world? What's the connection of this inner practice, in other words, with our outer practices? And what I want to suggest is that what we're doing here is a powerful, beautiful training for everything that we do when we're not here, for everything that we do when we're not doing formal practice. That the principles of transformation are the same inner and outer. That's what I want to uh, explore. So it really, in a sense, gives um, really another perspective on wholeness. It's another perspective on, we might say, non-duality. I thought Jeff uh, very uh, beautifully talked about these different aspects of non-duality, the way that we work on the duality of self and some traditional models of God, self and other. One of the other dualities that can be a little more subtle is the duality of inner and outer life, of our spiritual life, and then our response to the world. can be another duality that's often uh, subtle, not always seen. So for myself, um, I, like uh, many of you, grew up in what we might call a secular Jewish household. My parents both rebelled against religious Judaism as teenagers. My mother said it happened especially after reading Schopenhauer as a (laughs) 12-year-old. I think there were other reasons as well. (laughs) Schopenhauer, for those who don't know, is this somewhat gloomy 19th century German philosopher who brought out the negative side of things. Anyway. Um, And so I think both my parents embraced what we sometimes call the cultural dimension of Judaism. And I've heard that distinction mentioned in some of the groups. And they, in a way, took refuge in some of these beautiful um, dimensions carried forth by the tradition. Uh, Love of learning, interest in social justice, and um, I think really an embrace of science, actually. My father was a biochemist. My mother very politically involved. My father was pretty, pretty politically involved. Um, both of them uh, were on the, uh, went to the uh, March on Washington in 1963. My mother was involved with um, Head Start program and later in Richmond, Virginia, with what we now call diversity work for 10 years, you know, as the kind of ombudsperson for race relations for the whole school system for the city of <coughs> Richmond, Virginia. So, and I, and the only time I ever went to summer camp, my parents sent me to New York City to go to summer camp. <laughs> it's true. And I spent my time, my summer, only summer camp experience that I will probably ever have, I don't anticipate going again. 
the, only, the my only experience was spending time in Harlem and Bedford Stuyvesant and, and Greenwich Village. Just true story. So, um, you know, and I also realized that part of the background for many of us was that also the um, the Jewish contemplative tradition wasn't really available. In fact, it wasn't too much available until recently in the US. And even in Europe, I think the, um, the Holocaust destroyed a tremendous amount of the um, Eastern European contemplative tradition. Of course, some people escaped, but there was tremendous destruction there. So that coupled with the way that you know, religion has evolved over the last few centuries, both Jewish and Christian, which is the contemplative traditions have been marginalized and almost forgotten in, in many uh, quarters. So that wasn't available, but what did come through was what I would call the prophetic impulse, this strong and almost uh, fervent grounding in ethics and in justice. And I imagine that many people here felt something similar. I mean, let me just ask, how many people have something like that as a big part of your upbringing, that, that emphasis on, especially on the ethics and justice? So it's a good, it's a good percentage. Um, so I wanted to um, give you a sense of what this, the energy of the prophetic tradition. By um, playing a song, Sylvia said that some have complained that we don't have devotional moments and <laughs> music and so forth. So at this point, I want to uh, let me introduce it just a, a moment. But this is um, this I think really brings forth the energy of the prophetic tradition in in a way. It's a song by uh, Paul Robeson. It's some of you may know. It's uh, called "Go Down Moses," and some of you may know Paul Robeson, prophetic figure. In many ways, the prophetic tradition has been especially carried in the last century by African-American tradition, maybe in a very strong way. So I'm actually talking about prophetic tradition in a broad way that, that extends to many, many uh, traditions and you know, liberation theology and Martin Luther King, um, people who call themselves Christians or Jews. So this is Paul Robeson, and listen for the energy. It's, there's a certain passion, a certain um, really fervent energy for justice, for the movement. And this is the, the song gives one of the classic models for what liberation means, which is the exodus. It's a movement from bondage or oppression to freedom or liberation. Let's, let's hear this now. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land, tell
Thus spake the Lord of all Moses said, Let my people go. If not, I'll smite your firstborn dead. Let my people go. Go down, Moses. Wait down in Egypt's land. Tell Toil, let my people go. Let them come out with Egypt's spoil. Let my people go. Go down, Moses. Wait down in Egypt's land. Tell. surprised um, how emotional I felt with that, uh, having heard it so many times that there's, um, I think it brings out that whole power of the journey to liberation. Maybe like many of us were experiencing watching events in um, Iran before you came here. Some of you may have been uh, very uh, much involved with that. my ninth, my uh, yeah, my 22-year-old nephew was just totally monitoring Twitter all the time and giving reports. But very, very powerful. So the prophets are familiar to many of us, but I want to say a little bit about who they are. In the original Jewish context, they are figures like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, who mostly lived in a uh, two-century period from about the 8th to the 6th century. They identified what they took to be the ways that people were living unethically, were living out of disconnection with each other. They particularly focused on greed, on lack of compassion, on selfishness, on hatred, in ways very much resonant with what Jeff was talking about in terms of this um, core of our practice being to see where there is separation separation between parts of ourselves, between self and other, and so forth, to see where we fixate in certain ways on 
narrow self-identity, whether it's the narrow self-identity of a person or a group or a nation or a species. One of the great um, studies of the prophetic tradition was by Abraham Joshua Heschel. Some of you know his work, himself a prophetic figure who in the latter part of his life um, walked with Dr. King. Famous pictures you may have seen of him walking hand in hand at the front of the line with Dr. King um, at the bridge at Selma. He wrote this about the prophets. He said, the prophets are some of the most disturbing people who have ever lived. (laughs) Their aim was to shake complacency, to wake up, to use that metaphor. We have the metaphor of the exodus. We have the metaphor of waking up, both Jewish and Buddhist tradition. They are some of the most disturbing people who have ever lived. And he said, yet they are also those whose inspiration brought the Bible into being, those whose image is our refuge in distress and whose voice and vision sustain our faith. So they identify the problems of their times. In a sense, they open up to suffering. They identify sometimes with indignation, but I think always with love, what's happening. Social mindfulness, in a way. And I'll come back to that. So what I'd like to do is to talk about the practice that we do here and make some links with how that practice looks, uh, both on the inside and on the outside of the meditation hall, as it were, and how there's this unity of how we transform ourselves of how transformation occurs. That the principles are, I believe, the same, that we are training here to learn more closely how transformation occurs in this laboratory of meditation. The principles are the same. That's what I'll try to show in uh, some detail. And I thought to look at um, the elements of our practice in a modified traditional Buddhist way. Buddhists typically talk about the elements of our practice as wisdom and compassion, developing wisdom and compassion, developing clear seeing and the open heart. Sometimes it's said that the liberation teachings in Sanskrit called the Dharma, the liberation teachings are like a bird that has two wings and it flies and the two wings are wisdom and compassion. So I'll talk about wisdom and compassion, but I've been very influenced by the way that Vietnamese Buddhists in the middle of the 20th century felt called upon to modify that very traditional model. And they said wisdom and compassion are not enough. You also need courage. And so they said the three pillars are wisdom, compassion, and courage. What I like about that are a few things. One is that it really, in a sense, um, translates 
into mind, heart, and body. That uh, wisdom is more the mind training, as it were. The compassion is more about what we call in English, the heart. We have to also bring the body in. That's why we're doing yoga here, to really give the room for the body. But it's also, I was thinking, it's also like, what's between the wings? You can't just fly with two wings. You need a body. And so this is, this is I would say, courage. And it's really courage, especially connected with embodied action in the world. And so I'm going to develop those three. And the other piece I like about this model of wisdom, compassion, and courage is that the movement in Vietnam of what we call engaged Buddhism, which I've been involved with personally, working a lot with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. The very term engaged comes in this mysterious interdependent way from the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre, a French Jew, expressing the prophetic tradition and talking about the need to be engaged in an authentic way, which gets brought in to Vietnamese Buddhism in the French colonial context, totally helps develop this phenomenon of engaged Buddhism that some of you know, especially through Thich Nhat Hanh. And it, it shows some of the interdependence of how things occur. And there's more than that that you might think. So this whole phenomenon of engaged Buddhism and uh, the Vietnamese Buddhist is influenced significantly by the prophetic tradition as it comes through, comes through a sart. Can you define Buddhism? Yeah, thank you. Um, engaged Buddhism was talked about by um, Thich Nhat Hanh, and this is what he said. This wasn't a setup. I... <laughs> <laughs> he said, when I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both that inner and outer, to go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. So it's been this effort to bring the teachings of Buddhism into the realms of sometimes of war and conflict coming out of Asia. Dalai Lama would be an example, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. Um, sometimes to bring a sense of inner work that can help inform what people do in the helping professions or in service or in social change work, to really connect the two. So I want to then talk about wisdom, compassion, and courage, and show how that's what we're doing here. You may have thought you were just dealing with sleepiness, <laughs> but you're developing in wisdom, compassion, and courage. 
you may have thought that you were just trying to figure out a little bit of way to feel balanced, but you're on the fast track for wisdom, compassion, and courage. <laughs> so here's a non-Jewish, non-Buddhist understanding of wisdom, just to be a little ecumenical. This is from a friend of mine, Ruth Gendler, who happens to be Jewish, so it's a little asterisk with what I said before. <laughs> wisdom wears an indigo jacket. She takes long walks in the purple hills at twilight, pa pausing to meditate at an old temple near the crossroads. She was sick as a young child, so she learned to be alone with herself at an early age. Wisdom has a quiet mind. She likes to think about the edges where things spill into each other and become their opposites. She knows how to look at things inside and out. Sometimes her eyes go out to the things she is looking at, and sometimes the things she is looking at enter through her eyes. Questions of depth, time, and balance interest her. She is not looking for answers. So we initially here practice the cultivation of wisdom by developing mindfulness. We cultivate the several qualities of mindfulness. Mindfulness is a simple quality in a sense we're doing it formally here. It's really a quality that you were doing in certain ways before you ever heard the word mindfulness. It's really about giving attention and to some extent knowing that you're attentive. So what are some of the uh, qualities of mindfulness? First of all, it's dependent on a stabilized attention. We have to have some degree of stability of mind to be mindful. Otherwise, we're, we can't really stay with the object. And so that stability of mind is a prerequisite for mindfulness. We also learn to track the object. We can stay with the object as it changes. In the case of the breath, sometimes we can stay with changing objects. We can go from one object to another. We can stay tracking. Mindfulness has that ability to track. It also, very significantly, is a direct awareness, or relatively direct awareness. One of the powerful learnings that we come to just by practicing mindfulness is we learn more closely the difference between our more direct experience of thoughts, of sensations, of emotions, and so forth, and our interpretations and assumptions. We learn to distinguish the more direct experience from the various stories that we tell ourselves. Some of them interesting, some of them extremely frightening. You know, we, we learn to see that. It's not that we shouldn't tell stories, but it's very, very helpful to know when we are doing so. And to see, in particular, which of those stories are actually not helpful. To know when we have assumptions really, really crucial. I, I teach quite a bit on working with conflict in different settings, inner conflict and, and outer conflict. And I found that one of the key ways that mindfulness helps in a conflict situation is to see the difference between what's experienced more directly, often which is pain, often which is um, judgment and so forth, and the various interpretations that tend to solidify. It's actually the what peacemakers do. This is kind of suggesting somehow mindfulness actually can be a tool for peacemakers. 
lot of what peacemakers do is they bring people back to the more direct experience because we tend to get locked in to the fixed positions in a conflict. We get locked into the interpretations and the direct experience, often because it's painful, is far away. Not too hard to see conflict situations in that way. So tools of mindfulness, incredibly important for dealing with conflict. You know, for anyone who's taking a peacemaking role. Another aspect of mindfulness, I think we know, is that it's present-centered. That we focus on our experience in the present moment, even if that present moment experience is thinking about the future or the past. But we, tend, we try to stay in the present moment and that's where direct experience is found. Linked with those qualities is this non-judgmental aspect of mindfulness. We learn how to just be present with the experience and in a direct way, in a really connected way, but somehow not judging, not so hooked. We sometimes talk about this as um, non-identification using Buddhist language that we can stay very closely with experience, but we don't quite get hooked into things. And so we could say that it's almost like uh, one sense of science. We just stay with the phenomena and look closely without judging and without getting hooked while feeling directly, to kind of respond to that question in the morning. We're very directly in it. We're not detached. We're feeling very closely, but we can feel it without, as it were, going to get caught in the stories. We can feel um, sadness without going to blaming the person responsible for my sadness and engaging in dialogue endlessly over the last 48 hours. <laughs> no, I know no one, no one actually has done that. I haven't heard that. I, was just, I just made that up. Because um, I actually have not heard that. You know, one hour maybe. So... And one of the interesting things about mindfulness is that, and this is something that Sylvia and I talk about in in the loving-kindness retreats that we teach, is that as mindfulness becomes mature, it becomes warm. There's a warmth to it. And ultimately, the distinction between mindfulness and a blessing practice tends to evaporate. That there is a kind of moment of love in careful attention. We know that when we're with another person. Right? Careful attention to another person can feel like warmth and love. And our mindfulness moves in that direction. I love there's a Chinese pictogram for mindfulness in which mindfulness is made up of two symbols, one of which is a composite. One of the symbols is for present moment. The composite is of a house and um, a heart. If you take that together, and I learned this from uh, Gil Fransdale, it becomes mindfulness is a home for the heart in the present moment. So we explore what, uh, what Jeff was calling the four worlds. We explore, we've explored the body. We develop mindfulness of the body, we develop mindfulness of, the <clears throat> of our um, 
sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Tomorrow morning, we'll, I'll give him some instructions for mindfulness of thoughts and emotions and so forth. And we also develop in the classical Buddhist model, mindfulness of the larger patterns of our experience. So we, in a sense, we become aware of the constituents of experience, thoughts, emotions, bodily sensations, evaluations, and so forth. Then we start to become aware of the patterns. When we start becoming aware of some of the patterns of experience, it's particularly where we start um, being able to see what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom. We can see some of the patterns. We start to see them a little bigger. And that happens as we develop mindfulness. As we look more carefully, there's a natural wisdom which tends to emerge. This is really what we're doing. It takes time, and we have to somehow, mindfulness, I like to say mindfulness works with the exhaustion method. That's not the Buddhist term, that's my own term. And it's really that we have to look at things over and over and over again. Sometimes we have to notice the same thing 5,000 times before something clicks. Try not to be judgmental about that. (laughs) It's the way it is. And uh, we have to notice and notice and notice and notice. And something clicks. That's why we have to really stay in there. If you think you're just noticing, you say, I've noticed the same thing 50 times and it hasn't changed yet. You're just beginning. (laughs) So, uh, although I have to say, our more superficial patterns go away pretty quickly. The deeper ones do not. We have to watch those a lot and inquire and be with them and let them open up in various ways. So there's a, there's a natural kind of wisdom that emerges. And it's really, there's, um, in, in Jewish, uh, contemporary Jewish interpretations, there's a very interesting book called Mindful Jewish Living, Compassionate Practice by Jonathan Slater, which probably some of you know. I guess he's in the same circles, right? <laughs> he's in these, our, our, our circles of Jewish mindfulness. This is, this is what he said about a Jewish interpretation of mindfulness. He said, mindfulness is a return to the truth. In Jewish tradition, this is teshuva, fundamentally is a return to God. I think in that sense that that Jeff was talking about as a sense of interconnection, of not being separate. Our tradition teaches us that God's seal is truth. It makes sense that the awareness that motivates us to return to God is the experience of compassion for ourselves and others. It reflects the fundamental spiritual yearning of our souls for compassion, to be known, accepted, and loved by God. He says, mindfulness is the continual practice of paying attention to the truth of our experience. So it's teshuva in that sense. It's the continual attention to experience as a kind of dedication to truth, which itself, he says, is a dedication to God. One of the powerful emphases that we get from Buddhist tradition is that part of this opening to truth, and that's particularly very relevant to what the prophets teach, is the opening to suffering, is the opening to what's difficult. It's part of our practice. My own retreats, especially in the early years, were evenly balanced between glory and suffering. About (laughs) 50-50. You know, one retreat I'd be angry the whole retreat. Another retreat I'd be in bliss the whole retreat. It tended, you know, some people it's probably sitting by sitting. For me it's kind of retreat by retreat. And um, over time, 
uh, the suffering is way, way less, actually. And the bliss is more, 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 which is good. Um, but the, the teachings that are particularly powerful, and I think make a, a, quite a connection with the uh, prophetic tradition, is that it's possible to open up when things are unpleasant. Our normal conditioning, I think, uh, as Jeff was saying, is to shut down when the unpleasant is present, is to push it away. When the pleasant is there, it's to grab hold of it, to try to keep it there. Whether it's something good you ate in the dining hall or a good meditation experience or um, any kind of experience, we tend to grab hold. And part of what we learn in the meditation is that tendency and we especially learn that it's possible to open up to what's painful or unpleasant without necessarily becoming reactive. And there's a very powerful teaching, which is one of my favorite teachings that come from the Buddha, which is called the teaching of the two arrows, which really expresses this understanding. How many of you know this teaching, the teaching of the two arrows? So several of you. Anyone who's listened to me knows it. <laughs> So, because I, I like it. And, I, I, uh, and this is a teaching that starts with someone asking a question and saying, basically, everyone has some pain. You say, we all have pain as human beings. This is what Sylvia was talking about this afternoon. We all have a certain amount of pain. So how do we distinguish between what we do as practitioners and what we do, what non-practitioners do? And the Buddha was asked that. And he, he, he came up with an analogy. He said, we're all shot by an arrow. It's the arrow of being vulnerable, of sometimes having pain, physical pain, emotional pain, the pain of injustice, pain of loss. We all have a certain amount of that in our lives. And it's a given. And the Buddha says, we're all shot by the first arrow. What distinguishes the practitioner is that the non-practitioner because of the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow at oneself and others, we might say. We'll tend to react to the pain and shoot a second arrow, causing further pain. And what does that look like in experience? That could look like the fact that when we have physical pain, we contract around it. I've heard doctors say that 80% of what patients experience as physical pain is not the original stimulus, but is the reaction. And this is the basis for some of the applications of mindfulness in the area of health and medicine. People can learn not to react physically like that. Still the 20%, not always easy, but easier than 80%. So that's an example. What's another example? Very simply, if I, someone um, may speak to me really harshly or meanly, if I'm reactive, what do I do? I just react back to the person with meanness. That would be shooting the second arrow. Not hard to see how that dominates the world, doesn't it? Right? One side has pain. Because of the pain, they want to shoot a second arrow at the other side. Wars are second arrow phenomena. So you can see why if we could learn not to shoot that second arrow, what the implications would be for our, our larger world. 
not hard to see that. So what we do in this practice is we learn how to be with the pleasant and the unpleasant. We learn how to see how we shoot that second arrow, how we have a phenomenon that we may have, um, let's say, a sitting that um, in technical language is called a bad sitting. <laughs> it's a technical Buddhist term. I think, is it also in Jewish meditation? Probably. <laughs> a bad sitting means what? We don't get what we want, pretty much, which could be one of 20 things. Um, and so we, that's the first arrow, you know, or maybe a certain disappointment or whatever on a given sitting. And then we may, the second arrow would be to ruminate about the causes of my bad meditation. It's probably, well, I probably should have done another retreat. There's Jewish meditation, too much talking. <laughs> or, you know, it's, I should have just done a, a straight Buddhist retreat or a straight Jewish retreat or whatever. It might be, or it might be, I am just not very good at meditation. You know, that, and that can go on like that, or, you know, uh, this is the wrong path for me, and so forth. So we can, we can see that, we can work with it, we can identify that second arrow and try as much as possible to stay with the uh, first arrow, as it were. There are also are times, and I'll talk about this in a while, when if that first arrow is too much, overwhelming, that's when we call forth other resources, sometimes the blessings, the loving kindness, the compassion, as sometimes an antidote. We don't, it's not skillful to stay with um, pain when we're not balanced. When, we, when, when uh, a story has totally taken us over and there's no mindfulness, it's better just to cut it. Or when the physical pain is too much and we can't stay with it and it's more of a torment, then we want to come back to balance. That's an important aspect. And the use of the blessings or loving kindness is very, very helpful. So I think you can see how this ability to open to suffering and to work to not shoot the second arrow becomes such a powerful force in the social world, the basis for peacemaking, for mediators. I would interpret the whole of something like Dr. King's nonviolent movement as an expression of not shooting the second arrow. We have received oppression. We will not pass on the oppression to others through attacking them. We will end the cycles of pain with love, basically. becomes a powerful principle in the prophetic tradition. Partly it's the ability to be with suffering and to be willing to open to it. The prophets open up and identify suffering. They're willing to be with it. And that's a powerful part of the social application of mindfulness, to actually be present with suffering, whether it's in a family, an organization, or a society. I think you know that this society doesn't want to look at many, many, many kinds of suffering. So someone who could be instructed by mindfulness could help that happen, you know, whether it's the suffering of war or the suffering of those who we, um, whose countries we invade or the suffering of certain peoples 
a lot of suffering becomes invisible, as we know. And so the prophetic urge is to bring presence to that. I was thinking of a time a few years ago when I and some others um, had a meditation retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory in, in the parking lot <laughs> at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And we sat there for five days. And it was very powerful to sit in the presence of nuclear weapons and be present there. At lunch, we met with the scientists every day and talked about nuclear weapons. And that five days really never been the same, you know, that, that, that awareness. So the prophets are able to be with suffering. They're able to also not just be with suffering, but also point to the possibility of a good society. So the famous phrases that we hear from Isaiah, you know the famous ones, they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into sickles. Nation will not lift sword against nations. There will be no, no more training for war. There's a vision, Martin Luther King's dream. The prophets bring not just a, a being with the suffering, but like our spiritual practices, we, we don't just stay with suffering. Thich Nhat Hanh says suffering is not enough. We also have a vision of transformation, of liberation. And that, that, that guides us. The second quality of compassion, I think I'll also read uh, Ruth Gendler, non-Jewish, non-Buddhist version. Compassion wears Saturn's rings on the fingers of her left hand. She is intimate with the life force. She can understand the meaning of sacrifice. She is not afraid to die. There is nothing you cannot tell her. Compassion speaks with a slight accent. She was a vulnerable child, miserable in school, cold, shy, alert to the pain in the eyes of her sturdier classmates. The other kids teased her about being too sentimental. And for a, a long time, she believed them. In ninth grade, she was befriended by courage. So she, she's tuned into this, this threefold uh, uh, way to see things, too. Isn't that interesting? I, I love that when I found that. Courage lent compassion, bright sweaters, explained slang, showed her how to play volleyball, taught her you can love people and not care what they think about you. In many ways, compassion is still the stranger, neither wonderful nor terrible, but always utterly herself. So the compassion arises very naturally in part with mindfulness, with wisdom. The being with suffering, the being with the unpleasant, tends to evoke compassion. We sometimes talk about compassion as the open heart when it meets pain or meets the unpleasant. It's taken to be a natural quality. In Buddhist tradition, it's the quivering of the heart when there is pain and something that we develop very naturally with mindfulness. Again, we have to kind of hold the long view of how we do this. We can also, in our training, our individual training, more actively cultivate the quality of love with blessings, with loving kindness, with forgiveness, with joy. In Buddhist tradition, it's said that the, the heart really has four permutations. It, the open, and they're actually all the same heart. The open heart is love or loving kindness. 
the heart with pain is compassion. The heart, when there's beauty or something wonderful happening, becomes joy. And equanimity is the balancing factor. But it's also essentially a warm quality of the heart when it's mature, infused with the other three. And we can actively develop that. What I love about uh, we now, this is another example of the way that Jewish and Buddhist traditions interfuse. Sylvia and I were talked a few years ago. We, we wondered where the Buddhist uh, practices of forgiveness are, came from that we, that we work with at Spirit Rock because you don't really find them in the tradition. And we, we hypothesized pretty clearly that they came from 1974 from someone bringing in a Jewish prayer book in a Buddhist setting, and it just became tradition instantly. <laughs> so we use, we use these forgiveness phrases. But we can actively cultivate the hearts. In a way, as I mentioned, it's a really important antidote for uh, when there's a cer- certain amount of the unpleasant or painful. Really beautiful to develop those qualities. I work a lot uh, these days with people around issues of uh, being judgmental, judgmental of self and others. And I'm starting to write a book on that. And came out of my own practice as a recovering um, judgmental person <laughs> and with a occasional residue. <laughs> and, and, uh, but what I've noticed in working with people, when we follow the judgments with mindfulness, they sometimes lead into painful territory. And that for everyone I work with, I say, you have to have a heart practice as well. And I would say that generally. Mindfulness practice, have a regular heart practice to keep on developing that open heart. As part of your individual training, try to have a sense of a heart practice when you bring your practice out into the world. So develop what's what's your mindfulness practice in the hall on your cushion? What's your mindfulness practice outside? What's your heart practice um, on the cushion? What's your heart practice outside? Metta is a great outside practice. I, um, I often do metta at meetings. Very important. I have students who do metta loving kindness practice when they're driving. Do it with public transportation. Um, I actually also, as some of you know, I, I do metta practice um, with all emails. <laughs> Short story, I better be careful of the time. But, um, about four years ago, I did uh, five weeks of loving-kindness practice, like 18 hours a day, repeating the phrases 18 hours a day, like that. And it was really, um, it was only boring about 5% of the time. It was really fantastic, actually. And you get in a groove after a while, and it's quite amazing. And the phrases, after a while, there's no effort. It's like the propeller of old planes. You just turn around, they get going. Metta. Um, and so um, the last three or four days, I had some responsibilities, and I had to look at emails, five weeks of emails. In those, di- in those days, four or five years ago, there only were 400. <laughs> and, but because I had been doing metta 18 hours a day for five weeks, there's no way I could look at an email without the metta phrases continuing. And so I found myself developing a practice, which I've done to this day, in which Sylvia, I think, do you do this? Some, sometimes. And she's publicized it nationally <laughs> through a, a column she wrote in, what, Shambhala Sun, something like that. And uh, what I do is, with each email, I um, 
try to do an internal set of four phrases, and then I try to have the message of loving kindness expressed in the body of my email. Like I say something like, I hope you're doing well, or something like that. I try to vary it with the people I write to a lot, so they <laughs> don't think I'm too obnoxious. Um, but it's really become a practice. So you see that this, this, um, the practices we do here are not just for the cushion. And they're not just inner practices, but we can really bring those into everything we do and bring them more and more. And it really, they really can acquire a certain amount of um, energy. <coughs> There's a way also in which um, our action in the world further can be an expression of love. I think we know this. I uh, heard a beautiful phrase from the African-American social critic and philosopher Cornel West just a few weeks ago. He said, justice is the public face of love, which I, which I resonated beautifully. It's really the prophetic idea, isn't it? Justice is the public face of love. This energy to look for justice. Sometimes justice is, is indignant or angry. But it really, uh, one of the beautiful things in Abraham Joshua Heschel's work is that he brings out the way that the anger and indignation of the prophets, which is quite strong, is connected with love. And something that was very important, King and others, Dorothy Day, Gandhi, all talked about how constructive social change depends on the channeling of anger into constructive, transformed anger that can act. And so it's, the key is that it really becomes connected with love, ultimately. There's a beautiful passage in one of King's work where he says, I have decided to love. In the face of everything, I have decided to love. For me, it's one of the most moving aspects of witnessing our human experience is to see people who love in the face of pain or injustice, who, love, who bring out love in the face of obstacles, you know, in a very simple way or a very profound way. In a, in a simple way, difficult, thinking of a friend who has had numerous obstacles, diseases, and um, very difficult childhood, and feels herself in many ways crippled, but she keeps on bringing out the warmth and the good efforts. You know, year after year, despite difficulties, or for me, very inspirational was seeing the films of the Civil Rights Movement to see old African-American men and women who have suffered so much coming forth with dignity and care, somehow coming out with love despite everything. I think that's really the prophetic, prophetic impulse. So let me just finish by saying a few words about courage. I think courage is especially connected with action. And for me, it also points to the importance of a body practice. Internally, we can be very developed in terms of wisdom and compassion. And if we're not grounded in our body, we will be knocked around. We can be tremendously loving and wise people. And if we're not grounded in our body, we will not be so effective. For me, that was something I found from personal experience and partly grounding meditatively and just grounding and grounding in the body, particularly 
I found helpful, really grounding in the belly, much like in martial arts. And there almost are these centers, you know, where we develop in the heart, we develop in our consciousness. If we don't develop in the belly and the ground, we will tend not to be so balanced when difficult things happen. So a body practice, very, very crucial, I believe, for our culture. Yoga practice, something like Qigong, which works energetically. One of my Tibetan teachers, uh, Soni Rinpoche, said it took him 15 years to realize that Westerners had a peculiar relationship to their bodies. (laughs) And were energetically out of whack. (laughs) Many people could have told him that the first first visit he came, but uh, that was his discovery. So now he says, forget the traditional Tibetan preliminaries. I want people to have an energy and a body practice when they start to ground. And I really want to encourage that on an individual level, have a body practice. That's what I love about is what we do here. Really, uh, that grounding in the body, that sense of being able to um, keep, it really, it really is about courage, I think. There's this uh, wonderful poem, some of you know, from Mary Oliver, where she, I think it's called When Death Comes. Some of you know this, where she says, each body, a lion of courage. Each body, a lion of courage, and I'm paraphrasing, I think, and special and unique to the earth. And we need to cultivate that sense. To be grounded in the body, to be able in our meditation to work with courage, to be able to be with fear. Loving kindness practice, originally an antidote for fear. How can we work with fear? How can we work with mindfulness, with loving kindness, to ground in the body. Very crucial for our practice here, very crucial for our practice out in the world. A few last thoughts about about courage and the body. I've been the director of a two-year training program for people connecting inner work and social service and social change called the Path of Engagement, which just finished about a month ago here at Spirit Rock. And we found ourselves using, by the second retreat, every retreat we had what we call embodied practice that people could bring into the world. We used Qigong, we used Aikido, we used different ways of being able to stand your ground and learn how to work with difficult energies coming, learn to work with fear, with aggression. And there are these beautiful ways that we can do that, that it can be expressed at the level of the body. The prophets expressed courage, especially in speaking out where others didn't want to speak, in breaking silence. They said the biggest problem is the silence of the good people. Some of you know Abraham Joshua Heschel, very, very critical of the Christian church in Nazi Germany for its silence, very, very critical of Jewish and Christian religious institutions during the civil rights movement for their silence. He said the prophet has to speak up, has to have the courage to go into a situation and speak and act. It's really what the prophet does. Speaks in ways that are disturbing to people. Breaks complacency, awakens people. And we don't like it. (laughs) And so yet we can ask ourselves how we might become that awakening prophet ourselves, if this resonates with you.
So this, I believe, is our practice, our inner practice and our outer practice. They work in the same ways. We cultivate mindfulness, being able to look at the inner phenomena, the outer phenomena, whether they're beautiful or difficult. We cultivate the ability to do that. That is not our birthright in the sense of not being our natural uh, or not being our conditioning. It's our birthright in the sense that it's our potential. We learn how to be mindful. We learn how to be wise. We learn how to see the two arrows, internally and externally. We learn how to see what leads to suffering. We learn how to cultivate love, whether it's towards ourselves or towards others. We learn to see where there's separation. We learn to bring that out into the world. And we learn to do so with, uh, with courage. We learn to do that with um, a groundedness that can be with fear. I think I'll end with um, two, two short passages. One is from uh, Joanna Macy, some of you know, who's been one of my mentors, who is uh, one of the great teachers of engaged Buddhism and teaches here. She says, it is my experience that the world itself has a role to play in our liberation. Its very pressures, pains, and risks can wake us up, release us from the bonds of ego, and guide us home to our vast true nature. For some of us, our love for the world is so passionate that we cannot allow it, we cannot ask it to wait until we are enlightened. (laughs) And then the second is a short poem by uh, Dina Metzger. I think it really bringing together these three themes of wisdom, compassion, and courage. It's, it's a short poem, four lines, so listen carefully because it's going to go by quickly. <laughs> it's called Song. <clears throat> there are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Let's just sit for a minute or so. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. So thank you very much for your your good attention. We have a period of walking meditation and then we'll come back at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.